Well, good morning, everybody. Um, Pastor Andrea, um, we've met a while back, and uh, for those of you that uh, don't know who I am, I am one of your missionaries, and uh, we are in Florence, Italy. It's a joy to be here. I'm here with my two daughters that are here right now. My wife just uh, is in the back taking care of our little one. They just had some seizure of some sort. Um, she just fainted, so we're not sure what's going on, but all right, and um, well, a miracle happened during first service. I don't know if you know about it. Okay, well, so uh, one of our senior brothers came to me at the end and said, this is the first time in my history of being a Christian that I actually did not need to use my hearing aids. And uh, my ears worked just fine this morning. So apparently the sound system was out, but my lungs were, uh, you know, kind of holding it together for everybody. So uh, I'm going to try to keep it down. I do get excited sometimes when I'm up here, but I'll try to keep it down and short. Um, Let me give you just a small update. Uh, We have planted a church in Florence, Italy. It's been going really well. We've been here on furlough for a while, for a few months, and so we're catching up on health issues and some other things. And um, we've also started a seminary a few years ago. We're training Italians to be pastors and start to be church planters throughout the country. Our country is in a mess, spiritually, uh, complete mess. It can't get any worse. Uh, immigration is coming in. We are at the port of entry for Europe. A lot of immigrants come in. Uh, things are not looking good. Uh, the country is changing. The culture is changing. Uh, soon, our voting system is going to change because demographically, uh, obviously, you can just imagine what happens. Uh, and so, Post-Christian as post-Christian gets. So the old Catholic Italians are no longer in place. Our families have an average of about one child in the best case per family. So your concept of big, large, extended Italian families is no longer in place. Uh, Seven families out of ten don't even get married anymore. So that's a little bit of a picture in a nutshell of what Italy looks like. The harvest is plenty Laborers are few. Uh, God is at work, though. And so we are seeing just the move of God uh, using us dif- in different ministries areas just with bringing the good old gospel message in a country that is very post-Christian, very agnostic, very atheist. People are done with Christianity. They don't want to hear about God. Churches, cathedrals are empty. They're only full of tourists. Uh, and so it's tough. But God is king over all. And so we rejoice in that truth. And today, more than any other days, we're celebrating exactly that, right? So we're going to dive into a text today, Matthew chapter 21. We're going to talk about the story of Palm Sunday. And I want to encourage you this morning just to reflect on the kinship of Jesus. Now, one thing I love about Gunner is no matter what titles I give him for my sermons, he just comes up with his own. So we love each other so much that after I sent him the title a couple times, it still didn't matter because he just wanted to change it anyhow. So I guess today I am preaching on this is Jesus, right? And so beside that, I want you to um, look at this uh, for just a second before we start reading. I, I would like today to look at the celebration and the challenge of the kinship of Jesus. Okay, so if you will... Just bear with me. I would love to get into this text and help you see both aspects. Now, why? If you think about it, celebration and challenge of the kinship. 
I think that kingship in general comes with both aspects. Celebration and a challenge. Now, think of a new ordained king over a kingdom. He's celebrated. A new king is elected. He comes in full force, magnificent. So you can sense from the people this sense of celebration and and anticipation. At the same time, it comes with new laws, right? New challenges. And a new king to obey, to observe, to revere, right? Now, it's a bit of a foreign concept to us. We no longer have kings in most of the civilized countries. We now have what? But can I say the P word in here? Presidents. And uh, we won't go there, but presidents come with celebration and a challenge, right? So we get a sense of celebration, something that with anticipation we're looking forward for our economy, for our society, for our country when we elect a new president. With that comes a challenge. And without getting political, with all presidents from both sides come a challenge, right? Why? Because it's both aspects are part of the kinship. And I think the concept of kinship that we have in our countries come from the kinship of God that came with the celebration, but also came with the challenge. And so you could be getting a new boss. And I don't know if you've ever gone through that. I have. And sometimes the needle could be in favor of celebration, excitement, new vision, new direction, new mission statement. Sometimes your needle could feel a little more on the challenge with the new boss. A lot of changes. You might not deal with change well. You might not be a change junkie like me. I live for change. I get bored after, after five minutes. And, but you might not feel that way. And with a new boss, you might feel challenged to understand the new protocol, the new vision, the new character, the new DNA. That could happen in a church when you have a succession of pastors. An older pastor resigns and you have a new pastor coming in and sometimes with that comes a challenge to adjust, right? So you understand what I'm going for. So the goal for this time together this morning is to help you see the beauty of the kinship of Jesus, to establish in this text the beauty of his kingship and help you make him your king, the king of your life. And if if Jesus already is, to celebrate his kingship, as one of those crazy, nut, soccer fans, just like your pastor. Okay? I want you to celebrate the kingship of Jesus in all areas of your life. So let's dive into our text. Matthew uh, 21, classic Palm Sunday story. And we're going from verse 1 to 17. Matthew 21, verse 1 to 17. When they drew near to Jerusalem, they came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them. And he will send them at once. This particular thing took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, 
Your king is coming to you humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks and sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And so Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of rubbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. When the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city of Bethany and lodged there. So Jesus is starting his last week. His passion week. His last public appearance. His way down to Something that will lead to his ultimate sacrifice, the cross. Now, the city right now, imagine this picture, is on high alert. Super exciting place. Very vibrant, fresh. Jews coming from all over the place for the Passover. You can't find a spot. You can't find a hotel. You can't find anything available anywhere. It's crazy. But you have an issue. You have the Romans that are on high alert, because during these kind of times, with everybody coming in, they're on the lookout for any revolts, for anything that looks suspicious. The high priests on this time, they're trying to keep their Jews together, so that they don't get too excited, so we don't get in trouble with the Romans. And you all know what happens when you get in trouble with the Roman, right? You have one right here. You don't want to mess with the Roman. My wife doesn't want to mess with the Roman. She knows. I always get the last two words every single time, right? And you know what they are? Yes, dear. That's right. Somebody's listening this morning. Right? And so, because of that, you can just see and picture the situation. And the tension is high. Matthew just told us, though, what happened. Jesus, through Matthew, makes an outstanding declaration of his kinship as the promised, present, and future king. Through Matthew, through this text, the promised, the present, and future king. And in sharing this wonderful story at the beginning of Passion Week, as Jesus enters Jerusalem, the last public appearance, Matthew is saying, the promised, 
present future king is here. His name is Jesus. He's in front of you. Celebrate him. So you have the aspect of celebration and also challenge, right? So celebrate him. Praise him. Hosanna. Get excited. He's right here, right now. Appreciate him, but also submit to him. Don't mess around with the king. Don't compromise his glory. How does Matthew do that? He does it by quoting four different things, four passages from Scripture that allow the readers, but also us today, to understand, appreciate, celebrate his kinship, and yet be challenged by it. Four things. Number one, he is the humble, meek, gentle, saving king. How does Matthew do that? The first, the, the first five verses that we just read tell us a story. He sends the disciple to get donkeys. Not just any donkeys, specific donkeys, specifically tied to a specific place. Jesus has everything under control. Why? I'm going to answer to that. But he also tells the disciple before I answer, if anybody has any questions, you're going to tell them that the Lord needs them. Not I or anybody, specifically I by inference, the Lord needs them. And so what is he really saying? He tells them the messianic king is here. The Jehovah is here. Kurios in Greek is here. The Lord is here. The Lord needs them. So Christ is proving, and Matthew in the story is telling us, not a random thing, he's proving the deity of Christ, the kingship of Christ, by stating that he is, in this case, just with two donkeys, fulfilling prophecy. How is that possible? And why? He's quoting Zechariah 9, verses 9 and 10. Look at them. Uh, I'll read them to you. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Now, in Scripture, you're going to find often Zion, and you're going to find Jerusalem. Mount Zion, the Temple Mount, one of the hills in Jerusalem, eventually refers to just Jerusalem. Okay, so you're going to find that. You're going to find that it starts with Mount Zion and then eventually just refers to the city of David, Jerusalem. And when it says daughter of Zion, who are we talking to? Who's the author talking to? The offspring of Jerusalem. The Jews, the Hebrews. So is this prophecy cutting us out? I don't think so. Why? Because we need to keep reading. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous. Having salvation is he. Humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off. And listen to this. He shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, from the river Nile to the ends of the earth. So, 
you might feel that Matthew is painting a Messianic Jewish king and therefore feel left out, but you don't have to. Because he will speak peace to the nations, and that includes you and I as well. His rule will be from the Nile to the ends of the earth, from sea to sea. The king is here, is St. Matthew. But not just any king. So the reason why I said that, number one, Matthew paints the humble, meek, gentle, saving king is because of this particular prophecy. No king would have had this entry in any city. A king would have been on a war horse with chariots, soldiers, armies, celebrating his magnificent, his wealth, his stature. But not Jesus. Matthew is pointing to humility, meekness, gentleness. This king, Jesus, is saying, look at me. I am meek. I am gentle. I am humble. I am lowly. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. I am the humble, gentle, saving king. Now, if you're crazy like me, you probably read through this and you ask yourself, why? Why did he have to come this way when people were expecting the king? He is God, right? Could he have come as they were expecting on a war horse? I don't know if you've ever asked yourself that question when you read this text. I have. Why this way? Why not the triumphant entry as required for a true king? He comes on a donkey. Because if he did not, none of you will be celebrating. You would all be dead. I will have that entry, but unless I am meek and humble and make my way through the Via Dolorosa that leads to Golgotha to the cross to purchase you, you will not be singing. You will not be praising. You will not stand I am opening a season in which you can come to me. All of you that are heavy laden, come to me and you will stand with me secured when I will be back on a white horse. That is the point of the humble, meek, and gentle Savior. To open up a season that you and I, with him still on a donkey, humbly and gently can approach him for mercy. For forgiveness. Today, says scripture, is the day of salvation. But Matthew doesn't stop there. Number two, Christ is the exalted king. And in verses six to nine, the disciples went, you know, they did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the dunk and the colt. They put on them their cloaks. They sat, he sat on them. But then the crowd, they spread their cloaks out. They cut the tree branches and they start singing and shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Matthew has no doubt that Christ is the exalted king because 
the people understood the son of David was there. The exalted king was there, and they exalted him. They extolled him. They celebrated the king by singing Hosanna. That can only be directed to God. It can't be directed to a prophet. It can't be directed to anybody else, only to God. And people are recognizing that the king of kings is there. And so the king is exalted. The people, according to a different account, the account of John, not Matthew, John adds a detail saying there weren't just any tree branches. There were palm tree branches. That's why we call today Palm Sunday, right? Now, you only find that in, in the Gospel of John when he depicts this narrative and adds this palm tree branches detail. But then the same guy, when he writes Revelation, go with me to Revelation 7, uses palm trees again. Revelation 7, verses 9 to 12. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from every tribes, all peoples, all languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. What does that remind you of? The celebration. Of the celebration of Palm Sunday. A small preview of a celebration to come. A small preview of the promised present king that it will be a future king. Celebration, celebration, celebration. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. But here, there's a challenge as well. None of you will be there unless I go through this coming week. None of you will be with me shouting and praising me unless I go through this week. And therefore, I am the humble, gentle, meek, yet exalted king. Unless I overcome death, unless I purchase you, unless I redeem you, unless I swap your ugly, filthy sin with my perfect righteousness, none of you will be there. And one day, we'll sing Hosanna. So the people are seeing this. They're asking, who's this guy? And they answer, he's the prophet. He's the one, Jesus of Nazareth. Number three, John tells us he is passionate for the Father's glory. The king is passionate for the Father's glory. Remember what he does in the temple. He drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. It's the perfect business time right now. Everybody's coming in. Business is good. People are happy. They're exchanging their monies, depending on you know, what kind of money they had. And they're buying, they're selling. It's happening right in the temple. Perfect place. And he just overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons and said, it's written, my house shall be called the house of prayer. 
but you make it a den of robbers. See, this crazy business is good. And Matthew says, hey, guys, he just fulfilled another prophecy. Number three, again, which one? Isaiah 56, verses 6 to 8. The foreigners who joined themselves to the Lord and ministered to him to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings, their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcast of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him. Besides those already gathered, all people, all people will come from all over the place together to praise Him, to honor Him, to minister to Him. My house will be a house of prayer for all together. I will accept their sacrifices because it will be my son's sacrifice in their place. Christ is fulfilling this prophecy. How? He is cleaning up God's house from all robbers. How is he fulfilling it? Because he's cleaning up the house of the Father physically, but also spiritually. He will get rid of all robbers and All God's people will bring him praise. No robbers will be left. Zechariah 14 says, There shall be no longer a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. None will be left. So Christ is painting a physical picture of a spiritual journey that will end up with God's house being fully cleared one day when every knee will bow and every time will confess that he is Lord, no more robbers. And by fulfilling his prophecy, he is telling us that he is passionate for the Father's glory. Point number four. Matthew continues, and now, without quoting really a prophecy, by inference, I threw a a text in there that I think from Isaiah kind of confirms the narrative. Verse 14, the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. So Jesus healed the blind and the lame. Isaiah 35 verses 4 to 6 say, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God, and he will come and save you. And now listen to this. The eyes of the blind shall be open. The ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Jesus, by healing the blind and the lame, fulfills yet another prophecy. Point number four is he is king over all. Over all. I am here. I am king over all. The blind see, the lame walk. 
He is king over every cell, over every DNA, over every aspect of your life. He is not surprised by any details that are going on in your life right now. And you need to, if nothing else, walk out of here this morning knowing that he is that king. That he knows what you're going through. He is not surprised by it. But your prayers are only going to be as big as your concept of God. They're only going to be as big as your view of his kingship. If you think he's king over cells and DNA and over every bit of his creation, can he move minds? Can he move those cells? Just like that. Or have you gotten so far out of that biblical theology that now you've become just a fatalist and it shows in your prayer life that you're a fatalist well you know i'm just bringing god into this need but i know in the end whatever's gonna be whatever's gonna be yes i'm praying about it but you know what i'm not really believing that he is the king that has authority over sickness and diseases and other things i'm just stuck well i don't want to be a charismatic so therefore out of fear then i just became a fatalist and i'm just gonna go kumbaya well whatever happens happens god please you know you know my needs anyway i don't even have to pray about it you see how we're so sinful inside that we just take extremes. But is God over your job? Can he move the minds of the people that are working with you to get you on your spiritual journey where you need to be? Is he over every cell of your body when you are sick? Yes, he is. And John is say, Matthew is saying, he's king over all. The... the These people didn't have a sore throat or a headache, right? They were blind and lame. Sometimes we won't even go to him with faith for a headache. We've become so self-centered. In everything, we fix it our way. And when there is no way, we ask God to possibly do us a favor and come in and take over. Let me tell you, brothers and sisters, if you're anything like me, you got massive issues with control. He is king over all. How would your prayer life change if you started thinking along these lines, along these points, that he's king over all? When you approach the king and you really believe that he's that king, not only promised and present, but future king, How would that prayer life change when you're interceding for your spouse that is not saved? Or your child? Or your sickness? Or an unbelieving friend? And you're going before the throne and you're crying and you're passionate about it. But your view of God is this big. How would your prayer life change? Versus, oh, you know, my son and, you know, my wife, you know, once again, you know, I'm just going to. It's so easy for us to step back and... Be king over our own life. And think that we got to figure it out. And give up on God. And give up on faith in Him. And all you need is this much. Jesus said it. Why? Because it's not that that makes a difference. It's the big God. That that goes to. It's the object of your faith that makes a difference. Right? It's faith in Him. And you're only going to go as big as your concept of God. Lastly, because I lie like all preachers, I have a fifth point. 
Uh, yes, I know you know that. You're laughing because your pastor does this all the time, right? And so, <laughs> he is king worthy of praise. The chief priest describes verses 15 to 17. He's king worthy of praise. This, the priests and the scribes, they saw everything, these wonderful things that he did. And, and then they see the children crying out, Hosanna to the, to the son of David. And they were indignant. And they go to Jesus and they're like, do you hear what these kids are saying? They're not just saying or playing kumbaya. Hey, you're so good. Oh, I'm so excited to be here. They are calling you God. Hosanna and praise to the son of David only goes to God. This is blasphemy. Do you understand? They are praising you. We got the Romans here. They're after us. We're trying to hold the Jews together. And these kids in the temple, in front of everybody, in this moment with all of these foreigners coming in, are praising you as God. Why did Jesus end up being killed, so to speak, put on the cross? Why? Because of blasphemy, right? I mean, that goes in the face of everybody today that feels like, oh, you know, he never declared to be God. He never said, oh, I am God. Hello? <laughs> he got crucified because he said he was God. The only sin that supposedly to them he committed was exactly that blasphemy. And the Gospels are so clear on it, so I don't understand what people are reading, but that's beyond me. So, tension in the sea. The priests and scribes are wanting to keep healthy relationships. Everybody's on the lookout for possible factions starting and Jesus is just committing blasphemy. Do you hear what they're saying? They're giving you praise? And what does he say? What does he say? What does Jesus say in your Bible? Yes. Do you know what he says in the Greek in the original? Yes. Do you know what those people actually during that time, what, what did they exactly understand? Yes. I get it. I hear them. I love it. I receive it. I'm all over it. I want more of it. And why aren't you doing it, scribes and Pharisees? Why aren't you praising me? And he quotes what? Psalm 8, verses 1 and 2. Read them to you. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. Jesus is quoting the psalm confirming he is God, the Son of God, the King, worthy of praise. I am here. I am here. I am here. Worship me. Praise me. I receive perfect praise. The praise that comes from the babies and the infants. Only God is worthy of perfect praise. And I am He. So the promised present King introduced Himself as the gentle saving King, as the exalted King, as the passionate for His Father's glory King, as the King over all. And ultimately this last point, the king worthy of praise. But all of this celebration introduces a challenge. Where is the challenge? He is the returning future king. 
Matthew netted so well in all of these references, not only the aspect of his promised king and the present king, but also future king. Why? Because Christ came to offer this window of salvation, forgiveness, redemption, but he will be back to close that window. And when that window will be closed, he will come back, but he will no longer be the king on a donkey. And John in chapter 19 of Revelation pictures this for us that I think it's worth reading. I'll read it to you. Revelation 19, 11 to 16. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, not a donkey, not a colt, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven clothed with fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress and of the fierce of wrath of God the Almighty and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Look at that picture versus the picture of Palm Sunday. At that moment, there will no longer be switching sides. At that moment, his blood will no longer be his own blood, but the blood of his enemies. At that moment, he will no longer bring peace, but war to all who do not believe in him. And people are going to wish they had switched. He will strike down nations and completely and universally get rid of all robbers and traitors. To recreate heavens, to recreate earth, where everything and everybody will bring honor and praise to the Father through the Son. I'm going to leave you with a couple questions. Some questions that I've asked myself. Is Jesus really, honestly, king in my life? Do I believe he has authority over everything? Do I think like that when I pray? When I intercede? Do I think like that when I worship him and praise him alone or on Sundays with my brothers and sisters? Is my mind fixed on the king in a way that is worthy of his name when I sing songs? Sometimes Christians are accused of not lying 
But singing lies. Oh, you Christians don't lie. You sing lies. These people from the outside sometimes see us singing truth that they don't see in our lives. Have you heard that little joke? I'm a foreigner, so I might mess it up, but talk talks and walk talks. But walk talks louder than talk talks. I did pretty good, huh? Okay, good. Sorry. Sometimes our walk needs to show and confirm and display our talk. And so we need to look at that when we sing, when we pray. Our prayers, are they just down to a routine? We have to. Pastor's been preaching on prayer for, he's done three series on it. I just, (laughs) and is that what it's down to? Or do you feel a sense of excitement that your prayer life could just be so honoring, so celebrating towards the king that it's going to just change your life around? Because that's the weapon that God has given you. But unless you connect to that Bluetooth, you're not going anywhere. Because the enemy is out there to get us. And I'm a living testimony of that, being in the mission field and being in the front line. But your life is no better than mine. Because your mission is right here. Are you fighting that battle? Are you in that spiritual warfare? Are you thinking that your friends are going to come here just because you tell them to? How would that change if today, this week, every day, you're going to commit to pray for one person, that God would inspire you to talk to one person and pray for them all week long, If there's 70 people here, bring in another 70 people next Sunday on Easter after you have prayed that God will, on your behalf, move their mind. Can God move wills and minds? Hello. It's not a a hard question because if the answer was no, I wouldn't be here. If it wasn't that God moved my mind to see his beauty and my sin and made me realize how much I could go nowhere and I deserved everything but salvation and forgiveness and move my mind to receive Him as the Lord and Savior. He did the same with you. Somebody was praying that prayer for you. Because they believed that He was King over all. You're the fruit of that. Would you pray that prayer? And this week, commit, commit to bringing somebody next Sunday. I have no agenda here. I won't be here next Sunday. But you will, unless the king comes before him. But do you see that our prayer life, our relationships, are they a display of this? Are they a display of our view of the king over all? How is my life in my, in my marriage, with my kids, with my wife, with my parents, how is that showing that Christ is king over my life? How am I to answer and react to my spouse, to my children? How am I to train and discipline in view of his coming back and in view of my understanding of the king over all? Or is it still a challenge for us? And I would like to have... Uh, some of our brothers may be accompanying me with some music and just give you a moment to pray. 
and introspect. Because like I said in the beginning, in this I did not lie, at least this one, celebration and challenge, right? So as we celebrate the king, the king also gives us a challenge today. And maybe for somebody here, Palm Sunday 2018 is going to make you turn the corner. Maybe on your spiritual journey. And I don't know where you're at, but God does. Maybe you're going to turn the corner in your relationships. Maybe your relationships need to show that Christ is king over you. Or are you still fighting for control? Would you pray right now? Confess him as king over all. Receive him if you haven't. As the promised present and future king. And if you have, would you consider making him king? You guys can go ahead if you want. Making him king over your life, over your prayer, over your marriage, with your colleagues, with your friends, with your future plans and desires. How would that be affected and impacted should my view of the king be just like Matthew described it to us? A window of opportunity with Christ on the donkey for us to have a meek, gentle Savior with open arms. Would you keep rebelling? Would you surrender once and for all? And maybe you have surrendered positionally and you got saved. Or maybe your issue of surrender now is just as a stubborn Christian in other areas. Maybe you have areas in which Christ is not king over. It's called sanctification. Pursuit of holiness. And if you're anything like me, you've got a lot of areas to work on. Which areas God tagging on right now? Take a few moments to pray. As the music plays, take a few moments to pray. Repent. Confess. Commit. Maybe somebody's on your heart and you need to commit to pray for them this week and invite them over for next week. Give them a chance to hear the gospel message. God has placed those people in your life for a reason. They're not in my life. Maybe you have quit praying. Take a few moments, and then I'm going to finish with a word of prayer. Father, I, I want to thank you for this church. I want to thank you that brothers and sisters here, Pastor Gunnar, Anna, their family, they've been such an amazing support. Not only financially, but also spiritually with their prayers. Thank you that today we're still standing because of the prayers of this church and the support. Thank you for the work that you do in the mission fields. 
But thank you for the work that you do at home, in our home churches, in our local communities. Thank you for the challenge that we've received this morning. And I want to confess to you all of the many and too many times that I have fought against you for control. For the times that my prayers have been weak. For the times that my concept of you has been so diluted. For the times that I did not honor and praise you and celebrate you as the promised present and future king. I pray that you will forgive me. I pray that my prayer life from this moment on be so focused on the magnificence and the beauty of Christ, the coming King, to empower me and enable me to delight in you so much without compromising a bit of your glory. That my holiness, my purity, my moral choices will be a display of that. That my marriage will be a display of that. My communication with my children, my investing in their lives will be a display of that. My honoring towards my parents, my job, my colleagues, my friends, my business associates, are they seeing how much I'm in love with the coming King? Am I displaying that praise, the Hosanna song in my choices, in my decisions? Strengthen us, God. Speak to our hearts. And I pray for all of those hearts that are being touched right now by you and by your word. Let my words be gone and destroyed, but let your word stay. We thank you, Lord, and we honor you. And we are so excited and are living in anticipation to that great day when you'll be back. And we'll be with you. We thank you and we honor you in Jesus' name. Amen.